Dracula famously traveled to England to prey on his victims, but did England already have homegrown vampires preying on them? If so, one of them struck terror in the little town of Croglin in Cumbria. This is the story of the vampire of Croglin Grange. Hi everyone, welcome to the spooky season of Ooh. Halloween World 2023. My name's Gary. Hi, I'm Dean. Hi, Dean. Hi. Shall we? Yeah. Are you going to be scary? Um, you know, I'm going to tell a story and then we'll take a look at that story. It's a pretty famous uh, story because it, it comes from, well, potentially from quasi-modern times in England. Oh. It's the story of a vampire. So... Let's start at the beginning of the story. Augustus Hare was an English travel writer. He was around, I think he was active in the second half of the 19th century, right? His life was so damn fascinating in his own mind <laughs> that he published a memoir, but he couldn't fit it in one book. Uh-uh. Do you think two books? I'm guessing maybe, no. Maybe three books? <laughs> three books in 1897. And then three more in 1900. He published what? his six-volume memoir. I mean, were they like pamphlet size? No, they were book size. Wow. He was in love with himself. <laughs> yes, a massive, massive autobiography published from, I think, I think 1896, and then the next three in uh, 1900. So that's Augustus Hare. Had a lot to fill. I guess so. So he told a lot of stories, and in one of the stories, he says that he met a man named Captain Fisher Rowe at a dinner party in 1874. And that at that dinner party, Captain, which I'm just going to call him Captain Fisher, by the way. Captain Fisher told this amazing story. I guess they were, I don't know, trying to tell stories for, for the party. He said, well, I've got one for you. This, this really happened to my family. It's never quite clear when it was supposed to have happened, but let's keep that in mind. He told the story at the party in 1874. It might have been 1875, somewhere around there, right? At least according to Hare. So this is Hare telling a story about a story told by Captain Fisher. Okay? Okay. And again, you get the feeling it didn't happen then in too distant past, but we'll, as we after I tell the story, we'll, we'll take a look at that, and it's the timing is very un unclear. The story is about a vampire that terrorized a household in the county of Cumbria. That's in northern England. Sounds and it, like Italy. Pardon? Cumbria? Sounds like in Italy. Does it? Yeah. Well, it's not. <laughs> it's in England, northern England. And it was at a little village called Croglin, or, or very close to it, which is, uh, I think it's almost all the way to the border with Scotland, that far in north England. And Croglin is this little town that lies I guess between the, the Pennines, the hills, and the River Eden. It's very green. Think of it as picturesque. Beautiful, green, of course. Beautiful, that is, when a blood-lusting undead creature isn't terrorizing the, some of the people there. So first, let's start with the story. It was told in um, the, the name of Hare's autobiography was The Story of My Life. Super clever. <laughs> part six. I, I think so. I think it's literally <laughs> Story of My Life, part one, part two, and so on. And again, it's really more of an anecdote. So I'm, I'm basically going to kind of, if, I'm, if I sound like I'm reading, I'm reading the story. So okay. I'm going to kind of actually tell most of the stories. Now, again, it's, it's really told, it's supposed to be Captain... Fisher telling the story at a dinner party, and this is Augustus Hare's version of him telling that story. Okay. So, Fisher, 
said the captain, may sound a very plebeian name, but this family is of a very ancient lineage. And for many hundreds of years, they have possessed a very curious old place in Cumberland, which bears the weird name of Croglin Grange. This is the house they had. The great characteristic of the house is that never at any period of his long existence has it been more than one story high. Why that's so special, I don't know, but it's very special. It has a terrace from which large grounds sweep away towards the church in the hollow and a fine, distant view. So think of this big house, single story, out in the back, you know, this, this terrace, this huge meadow, and it eventually ends up at like a church with a, with a churchyard. Okay? Sure. Probably a graveyard. Oh, yeah. When, in lapse of years... The Fishers outgrew Krog and Grain in family and fortune. I don't know what that means they cannot afford it anymore. I don't know, but they moved. Huh. And they were wise enough not to destroy the long-standing characteristic of the place by adding another story to the house, but they went away to the south. Super, super obsessed with the whole single story. <laughs> and they went to live in a place called Thorncombe near, near Guildford, and they let Croglin Grange. They were extremely fortunate in their tenants, Two brothers and a sister. They heard their praises from all quarters. So everybody liked these guys. Okay. The two brothers and a sister. Weird to have two brothers and a sister living in a house together, fully adults now. Shouldn't one or two or three of you get married and have your own life? I don't know. But two brothers and a sister live in this house now. Not everybody has to get married, Dean. Three out of three? Yeah. I don't, that's weird. To their poorer neighbors, they were all that is most kind and beneficent, and their neighbors of a higher class spoke of them as a most welcome addition to the little society of their neighborhood. On their part, the tenants were greatly delighted with the new residence. The arrangement of the house, which would have been a trial to many, was not so for them. In every respect, Krog and Grange was exactly suited to them. I don't know why. Skip ahead a little bit. So they, they're you know living there for a while. I don't know, they're having dinner or something, and then it resumes the story. When they separated for the night, all retiring to their rooms on the ground floor. Duh. For as I said, there was no upstairs in that house. I swear to God. <laughs> the sister felt that the heat was still so great that she could not sleep. And having fastened her window, she did not close the shutters. In that very quiet place, it was not necessary. And propped against the pillow, she still watched the wonderful, the marvelous beauty of that summer night. So the window's closed, but she didn't close the shutters. I, are shutters used for noise? I thought they mostly Maybe, kind of I protection, weren't they? You know, in the olden days, because you have a closed glass window. She yeah. closed that. Yeah, weren't they like storm shutters? I thought so. Yeah, so that things didn't knock against the glass, yeah, right? I guess so. So she left them open so she could marvel on the beauty sure. of, of the day. Mm-hmm. Gradually, she became aware of two lights, two lights which flickered in and out in the belt of trees which separated the lawn from the churchyard. And as her gaze became fixed upon them, she saw them emerge fixed in a dark substance, a de- definite ghastly something which seemed every moment to become nearer, increasing in size and substance as it approached. That was one sentence, by the way. Yeah. This is what they did back in the late 1800s. Every now and then it was lost for a moment in the long shadows which stretched across the lawn from the trees, and then it emerged larger than ever and still coming on. So she sees these two lights flickering, coming closer and closer to her over the meadow toward the house. As she watched it, the most uncontrollable horror seized her. She longed to get away, but the door was close to the window, and the door was locked on the inside, and while she was unlocking it, she must be for an instant nearer to it. That doesn't make sense. How is the outside door close to the window, which has, by definition has to be on the outer wall of the house? The door should be toward the hallway. It should be in the opposite. That makes absolutely no sense to me. 
but there you have it. So suddenly, so she's frozen with terror. She can't go and and just get out the door because she would then have to be, I I guess she'd have to go by the window. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. She'd have to walk by the window. It's not well explained. It doesn't make a a ton of sense physically, but see, she can't. So she's frozen. She stays in the bed. Back to the story. She longed to scream, but her voice seemed paralyzed. Her tongue glued to the roof of her mouth. Suddenly, she could never explain why afterwards. The terrible logic seemed to turn to one side, seemed to be going round the house, not to be coming to her at all. And immediately she jumped out of bed and rushed to the door. But as she was unlocking it, she heard scratch, scratch, scratch upon the window and saw a hideous brown face with flaming eyes glaring in at her. So can you imagine? Gross looking creature human-esque looking creature scratching with his long, nasty fingernails on the window. I could imagine it in my nightmares because that's what this sounds like. She rushed back to the bed, but the creature confined... She rushed back to the bed, but the creature continued to scratch, scratch, scratch upon the window. If that makes sense to you, we're all confused because... You're at the door, you're going to the door, and you turn around to see the, the creature scratch at the window. How are you going to, why do you rush back to bed? We've already established that you have to go by the window, we think, to get yeah. in between the bed and the door. So I don't know, whatever. She wants to hide under her covers. Maybe so. Yeah. A little safer there. She felt a sort of mental comfort in the knowledge that the window was securely fastened on the inside because, you know, no one can break a glass window. Uh-huh. Suddenly, the scratching sound ceased and a kind of pecking sound took his place. Isn't that worse? Then in her agony, she became aware that cre- the creature was unpicking the lead, exclamation point. What? Not a billion percent sure what that means. Oh, they, they had like leaded glass windows. So it's it's scratching off a layer of lead or what is it? I don't understand. You know, leaded, leaded glass windows are like um, almost like stained glass. Yeah. The lead yeah. in between the little panes. Oh, 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 I see. So if he's picking oh. off the lead. Is, is, well, then the window's going to come apart. The actual window. That's what he says. So is my suspicion. It's true. So the story continues. The noise continued, and a diamond pane of glass fell into the room. Yeah. So he's just picking around it, and then knocks it. Yeah. Free. Mm-hmm. Then a long bony finger of the creature came in and turned the handle of the window, and the window opened, and the creature came in, and it came across the room, and her terror was so great that she could not scream and it came up to the bed and twisted its long bony fingers into her hair and it dragged her head over the side of the bed and <gasps> it bit her violently in the throat. Uh-oh. As it bit her, her voice was released and she screamed with all her might and main. Her brothers rushed out of the rooms but the door was locked on the inside. She shouldn't have locked her door. No. A moment was lost while they got a poker and broke it open. Then the creature had already escaped through the window, and the sister, bleeding violently from a wound in the throat, was lying unconscious over the side of the bed. It's that, that classic heroine uh-huh. pose there. One brother pursued the creature, which fled before him through the moonlight with gigantic strides, and eventually seemed to disappear over the wall into the churchyard. Then he joined his brother by his sister's bedside. She was dreadfully hurt. And her womb was a very definite one. <laughs> but she was of strong disposition, not even given to romance or superstition. And when she came to herself, she said, what has happened is most extraordinary, and I am very much hurt. It seems inexplicable, <laughs> but of course there is an explanation, and we must wait for it. <laughs> oh, okay. This is her still talking, by the way. It will turn out that a lunatic has escaped from the sum asylum and found his way here. That's end quote from her. 
The wound healed and she appeared to get well. The doctor who was sent for to her would not believe she could bear so terrible a shock so easily and insisted that she must have change, mental and physical. So her brothers took her to Switzerland. So the doctor gets there and says, no, she may be putting on a brave front, but she's a lady, so she can't handle this. You better get out of the country. (laughs) And they did. They took her to Switzerland. Back to the story. Being a sensible girl, when she went abroad, she threw herself at once into the interest of the country she was in. So I'm guessing she learned how to yodel? Mm. I don't know. She dried plants. She made sketches. She went up mountains. And as autumn came on, she was the person who urged that they should return to Croglin Grange. Interesting, isn't it? Quote from her, we have taken it, she said, for seven years, meaning the house, they, they seven-year lease, and wow. we have only been there one. And we shall always find it difficult to let a house which is only one story high. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, they're out. So we had better return there. <laughs> Lunatics do not escape every day. So she's convinced there was lunatic. She, and it's probably right about that. Pretty brave, though. She's the one who wants to go back, not her brother. It's interesting. As she urged it, her brothers wished nothing better, and the family returned to Cumberland. From there being no upstairs in the house, it was impossible to make any great change in their arrangements. The sister occupied the same room, but it is unnecessary to say that she always closed the shutters, which, however, as in many old houses, always left one top pane in the window of the window uncovered. <laughs> so she's still in the she's in her room. But the shutters leave one top pane of the window uncovered. I don't know why. If there was a known flaw in shutters, maybe they should have fixed that. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that means. So are these inside shutters or they outside have to be. shutters? They must be inside okay. shutters, right? That's why I was saying the same thing too. And these must be inside. So, the, so they're not storm shutters. They're no. just regular for, for, shutters. For quiet, probably like in lieu of drapes, right? Yeah. Yeah. And for just a window treatment. Like we've had shutters. Color and sound. Okay. Yeah. The brothers moved and occupied a room together. Exactly opposite that of their sister, and they always kept loaded pistols in their room. So they're so concerned for her, they're going to bunk together right across. One could be in that room, and one could be in the next nearest room. And you know what? They could have put her in a different room, actually, it turns out. She didn't have to be in that room. But you know what? She liked it. She did. She liked the view. The winter passed most peacefully and happily. In the following March, the sister was suddenly awakened by a sound she remembered only too well. Scratch. Scratch, scratch oh, no. upon the window. And looking up, she saw, climbed up to the topmost pane of the window, the same hideous brown shriveled face with glaring eyes looking in at her. So it's up there. I guess it climbed yeah. a little bit. It's up there looking into that top unshuttered part of the window. Back to the story. This time she screamed as loud as she could. Her brothers rushed out of their rooms with pistols and out of the front door. So it's like, screw you, we're going to get that. The creature was already scudding away across the lawn. One of the brothers fired and hit it in the leg. But still with the other leg, it continued to make way, scrambled over the wall into the churchyard and seemed to disappear into a vault which belonged to a family long extinct. Mm -hmm. The next day, the brothers summoned all the tenants of Croglin Grange, and in their presence, the vault was opened. A horrible scene revealed itself. The vault was full of coffins. They had been broken open, and their contents, horribly mangled and distorted, were scattered over the floor. I'm guessing that means skeletons, but maybe bodies? I'm not sure. One coffin alone remained intact. Of that, the lid had been lifted, but still laid loose upon the coffin. They raised it, and there, 
brown, withered, shriveled, mummified, but quite entire, was the same hideous figure which had looked in at the windows of Crogland Grange with the marks of a recent pistol shot in the leg. Mm. And they did the only thing that can lay a vampire. They burnt it. <gasps> no stake in the heart. Yeah, interesting. Chop off the head? Burnt it. Just burned it up. Hmm. That's it. That's the end of the story. That is the story that, again, Augustus Hare said he heard from Captain Fisher in 1874. And he's writing about it more than 20 years later. Right. And he said this was his family, right? Happened that, to his family. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it starts kind of weird because, yeah. yes, Fisher said this is my family. Yeah. So... There is a, a kind of alternative ending I, I read in one source, and it said this, quote, I'm not going to say, say the source because they're completely full of shit and they made, they made up every word of this. Quote, they dragged the hideous corpse out of the crypt with the intention of burning it. Some say they pulled the vampire towards a holly tree in the churchyard, as holly was considered by the local folklore as beneficial in such an operation. Really. There, they incinerated the dreadful cadaver, and all the outrages of the Crogland vampires ceased. You can still see the holly tree stump in Crogland churchyard. End quote. Now, I just read you the actual story. I've checked it in two different sources from Augustus Hare. Obviously, none of that's true. Yeah. This source just thought, hey, let's just make up a new ending. So, you know, you can't do that. It's not yeah. your story. If you made up the story, go for it. But you didn't, so knock it off. So, was it true? That's the first question, right? So, so the first question, like so many of these kinds of paranormal, supernatural kinds of things, the first question should not be, oh, let's explain that through natural means. It should be, did this unnatural event actually really happen, or at least in any, any way kind of remotely similar to how it's told, right? Sure. So... Early on, there were people doubting this and doubting this story. And so what they did is they decided, let's go see if at least the physical facts are true. This Crogland Grange, this house, this church, this vault, said, Let's go down there, up there, usually, and to Crogland and take a look. So a guy named Charles Har- Harper, Charles G. Harper, did exactly that early on. It must have been some time not long after the book was published because he wrote about it in his book called Haunted Houses that was published in 1907. Oh. And part of that was his research into the Grog, into the vampire of Crog and Grange case. Did the story contain the names of the people? Yes. The woman in other places is called Amelia. And I don't, I, I'm not going to lie. I, you, you hear it referred to as Amelia many times. You don't hear that in the original story though, do you? Yeah, I don't... No, uh-uh. they're not named. So I'm not... not but a lot of times, and I'm going to use her name as Amelia later okay. on, a lot of uh, sources, a lot of sources call the sister Amelia. There's absolutely no names whatsoever. None of the sister nor the brothers are given any names in Hare's telling of Captain Fisher's story. Sources just say things like, other sources later figured out their names were the Krasnells, Michael and Edward Krasnell and Amelia Krasnell. As far as there's no reason to think that the only source for this was Hare's book as an as told to by Captain Fisher. I have no idea what these other sources think they've figured out the names. That's impossible. Somebody at some point made up names for them. That's all I can think of. Yeah. But Charles Harper investigated this. He was almost like, think he was kind of, it sounds like a paranormal investigator. Yeah. Like I said, he wrote this book about haunted houses in England. And... He So he trips around Cumbria for a while in the area around Crogland. Presumably he pours over some dusty old records because he decides that he can't find any kind of building that 
is really matches the whole this Croglin Grange. Nothing's certainly called Croglin Grange, and he can't find anything that really matches the physical description of Croglin Grange. He does find two possibilities: something called Croglin High Hall and something called Croglin Low Hall, which is super. They always had really clever names back then. <laughs> A Grange, by the way, is a farmhouse, and usually it's thought yeah. of it has some some. It's like a country farmhouse, and maybe it even has some farm buildings attached to it. Mm-hmm. And Croglin Low Hall came closest to this, to Augustus Hare's description, but critically, it has two stories, and had two stories when he went there, which is not long after the the book the story was published. Well, maybe so, somebody added a second story. Maybe so. Maybe so. In fact, someone later on will say exactly that. But that it didn't it fit Amelia's story, the vampire walking across the meadow and tapping on a window at ground level. And that's, that's you know, pretty important. If, um, and again, his story says that's never had. And, and his, his oh. story is in 1870. He's being told it's in 1874. Presumably Captain Fisher would have known that and said something like, at the time it had one story. Now it has two. Unless this, the second story got added between 1874 and 1900-ish or so. Yeah. That, which would be possible. Possible, but weird. What's more, Croglin Low Hall is about a mile from the nearest church. It's not just across the meadow. It's a, a good solid mile away. And that church was St. John's Baptist Church within Croglin Village proper. It's not like oh. just a country churchyard right across a meadow. Yeah. It's actually in the village. And that church has no tomb, no mausoleum, nothing like that at all that could have been a vault that they would open and find this vampire and these disarrayed coffins and such. So nothing seemed to fit, according to Charles Harper. He also, Harper, found no sign of any prominent Fisher family in the area. He found no one lived there, no residents in Croglin, you know, knew about this family, anything like that at all. He, he came up with a complete goose egg in terms of of the house and the family being having anything to do with Croglin whatsoever. Yeah. Later in the 1930s, though, a researcher and writer named Francis Clive Ross traveled to Croglin himself again, and he interviewed a bunch of locals, as many as he could find who would talk to him about the Croglin grain story. But now, this happened at least before 1874. He's doing this supposedly in the 1930s. The reason I say supposedly is he wrote this in an article that was published in a magazine in 1963. Oh. So he's saying like 30 years ago, I investigated this Croglin Grange vampire story by talking to the locals. The locals who would have been at least 80 if they had could have any memory as a semi-adult prior to 1874. And it's not like that story happened a year ago, the way Captain Fisher tells it, it certainly seems, you don't really get a great sense. It could, it could right. have been 20 years ago, it could have been 200 years ago, but I don't know, the, the Francis Clive Ross story is a little fishy to me, because again, he, he waited a very long time to publish what he did, and that the reason that's suspicious, because he's got to have people there who are alive during right. these events, and if he says it was 1962, that can't be true. Yeah. But anyway, Francis Clive Ross investigates... And he did come up with some kind of interesting tidbits that lent a, a little more credence to the story, at least as he tells it. He said that that Croglin Low Hall had been called Croglin Grange way back in the old days at some period. The building did have an adjoining chapel, not a church, but in a chapel. And maybe he supposed or he heard a rumor, I'm not sure exactly, that chapel was built on the foundations of a church, maybe. So okay. he's kind of like, you know, giving what? a little bit of... of 
historical validity to the story. Not a lot, though, as you can okay. tell. Hang on. What's yes. the difference between a chapel and a church? Chapel is a little. I think the chapel is like a little family thing. You wouldn't go to. People don't go to the church. You have like a. The house has a chapel for. I think just for the family to go to, or like the local residents. Like a like a, like a castle, a manor manor house would have the chapel. I think. I could be wrong, but it was like for the servants and the family and and to maybe, just go pray. There's yeah. no I, I don't, efficient. No, uh, uh-uh. huh? Okay. Maybe they have services there on Sundays. I don't know, but it's yeah. not quite the same as a church. Okay, not to that level. I don't think that's my quick definition of chapel versus church. I could be completely wrong. It makes sense. Yeah, Ross said, or Clive Ross, whatever his name is, said his sources also told him that the old building had originally been. A single story before the addition of a second <laughs> level at some point. And he said he viewed the corbels that were built to support the roof above the original first floor. Corbels, if you don't know, do you know what corbels are? Mm-hmm. What are they? They're things that hold things up. Oh, that's really good, Carrie. <laughs> They're often like that, that thing right there. You can, yeah, that is a corbel. So they're like arch-shaped usually, and usually attach them to the top of, of the first floor to hold up something above it. And like, and but that's something. And they're often ornately decorated in yeah. these old homes that have like a gargoyle on it or something like that. Yeah. I don't think though. Well, first two things. One, they're not proof that you had a second story that you added a second that you added story. a second story because they're kind of decorative. Yeah, and they often just hold up like maybe give support to like a balcony or something like that above the first floor. Not necessarily the. the I don't think they're like structural for an entire second story. I certainly wouldn't think no. so. By the presence of them, it doesn't necessarily mean that that second story was added later. There could have been two stories the whole yeah. time. Okay, that, the second thing was that they you should support a balcony or something like that. So yeah. it's not it's not it's it it's not bad. It's not bad that he saw the corbels, <laughs> but it's not it's far from definitive. Yeah. He also found an old woman named Mrs. Parkin who lived in a town not far from Croglin, and she said she had known a Fisher descended back in the the days old when she was a a youngster supposedly that. Fisher had been born in the area in the 1860s, she said, and that she had talked to him and he had told her that he heard about this vampire story from his grandparents. So oh. it's, it's coming to sound a little bit more like a, like a family oh, legend yeah. of some sort, at least according to Clive Ross. She appears to be, I think this woman, Mrs. Parkin, must be Ross's source that Croglin Low Hall had been called Croggan Grange, because she, she, he says now, she told me that she had seen the deed to the property and that up until 1720, it was ca- called Croglin Grange. So apparently this woman, Mrs. Parkin, was very fond of looking at old musty deed records from towns four miles away from where she lived. Interesting, convenient, but uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I've seen the deed. Or, or, or plural, right? Deeds, and they yeah. changed it, the, and she no, uh, saw but, a deed yeah. before 1720 that called it Crogden Grange. Little weird. Interestingly, the grandparents and that birth date of this person, this Fisher, the supposed Fisher that Mrs. Parkin talked about, doesn't that kind of it? It kind of pushes back the events, I think, in my mind, from being that recent right. in the 1874 original telling from Captain Fisher Rowe. And, and again, it makes it more like a, a family legend long passed down because it feels like it dates to like maybe the late 1700s, early 1800s, because the, the name on the deed says that, uh, says before 1720, doesn't it? If they really stopped calling it Croglin Grange after 1720, and call it Croglin Low Hall, the story wouldn't call it Croglin Grange, right. would it? 
yeah. or, or maybe not for very long, maybe a little while after that, just as from a, you know, from habit. And which would mean we have to push the story back like more than 150 years before Captain Fisher told it to Augustus Hare in 1874 or five. And the the grandparents, right? If the grandparents had told this guy, and he was born in 1860s, that means he must have been, a, I don't know, 1870s, the grandparents told him this story. That means the grandparents probably weren't alive when it happened. It seems like just yeah. logically. Yeah. So that pushes it. That's why I say it pushes it back to at least like the late 1800s. And the, but the, the Grange thing pushes it more back into early 1700s at best. Uh, the old scary mummy, the type of the mummy like shriveled vampire is also a little bit of a throwback. As the 19th century wore on, vampires started to become, you know, looking like us. Yeah. Maybe they're suave and debonair yeah. like the famous Dracula, but. But the um, earlier versions of, of folkloric vampires in England, and there wasn't that much, but also the more numerous vampire legends of Eastern Europe, where they kind of came from, would be more like the Nosferatu-looking thing and more like this yeah. than the vampires of 19th, 19th century England. So the fact that this vampire looked the way it was described, again, seems to me to push back the origin of this legend a little further back in time. There's some other timing issues here. The map showing the supposed church near Crogland Low Hall dates from 1695. So that's going even way back. There was, there was a church back in 1695, possibly, and it calls the building Crogland Parva, not Crogland Grange. So there's problems with this. And, and again, it's more of a chapel than a church, so it doesn't fit. And, and another document says that that church was destroyed in the 1640s during the English Civil War. And no cemetery, mausoleums, no, no, crypts, nothing, or nothing like fits that, that at so. all. Yeah, not every church has that. Yeah. So I don't know. Some of the local sources that Clive Ross spoke to said that the family legend dated back to the 1680s, Jeez. at least. So he seems to acknowledge uh, it's an old, old story. Yeah. And I guess that that you could you know, you'd do things like that. You go to Switzerland if you got scared. <laughs> I mean, rich people did yes, that and spent yeah. time in, in, yeah. on the continent. That's not untrue. But all of this, again, has the effect of pushing it way, way back into the hinterlands of history, and that's always a little worrisome for its truthfulness. That's all. I mean, I I would just say that's generally true. So could there be, though, rational answers for this uh, occurrence, this creature coming out of uh, seemingly and attacking this woman in the house? Some people have tried that. You know, <laughs> some people have apparently leaned on the top theory for the Mothman, and they thought that Amelia was spooked by an owl, that she saw an owl, an eye shine of an owl, maybe up in a tree. And then they think maybe it like silently, because it would, yeah. sort of flew quietly toward the house. And then she's totally freaked out. She's scared. So she sort of fantasized or hallucinated the whole rest of the story. So it's kind sure. of... You know, it's kind of a, this initial hypnosis uh, due to misperception, yeah. and the rest is fantasy. That's one uh-huh. attempt to say, well, here's maybe what happened. Another version does say, oh, no, 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 there was something out there in on the trees there and in, in the mist and, and outside the window, too. But it wasn't some brown, shriveled vampire. It was a monkey. Oh. So people have said maybe... It was an escaped circus monkey. It was out there in the pretty barren forest of Cumbria. Not a lot of fruit for it to eat. Yeah. And so it's hungry. It's starving. So it sees a light in a window. I'm maybe a, an attractive young lady on the other 
end of that, and it breaks into the window, and in its hunger, it decides to satiate itself on human blood, I guess. Or maybe she just, it's, just she scared it, yeah. and it just attacked her. Yeah. yeah. So a monkey is out in the trees. She sees it. It comes closer. She thinks it's a person because it's a monkey. It's a primate. It's got arms. Yeah. Um, and it starts scratching on the window. She's freaked out. It breaks in, it quietly <laughs> unpains the one diamond and then opens the latch. It's yeah. a smart monkey. Monkeys could do that. I, I think they probably could. Especially if it's a circus monkey. Yeah, you're right. It's trained. Probably looking for cigarettes. But then uh, wouldn't the brothers yes, who aren't would so think. scared, wouldn't they notice well, what they yeah. were shooting at? They shot it in the leg. You think uh-huh. they notice a monkey, by the way fleeing on all fours for sure uh-huh. that not a person true good point yeah. maybe there was uh, i'm not buying the monkey story you're not buying the monkey no. story how about the owl story same okay. same argument right yeah how, how the brother's how shoot not it? shooting an owl in the leg yeah. as it's fleeing yeah yeah unless the brothers are just maybe they too were hallucinating and hypnotized sure. by the Possible. spooky owl yeah maybe there was some strange event from the not-so-distant past at Crogland that can explain this, though. A guy named Mark Alexander, who wrote a book called Haunted Churches and Abbeys of Britain. He published that in 1978, and in that he claimed to have found records kept by a rector of Crogland Church. So this would have to go back a long time. His name is Matthew Roberts, the rector, and he told of sightings of some kind of bat-like creature at the church. Now, I think he's referring to the Crogland Church in town, I believe. So okay. the, the real one, yeah, I, I think. Matthew Roberts talks about this this bat-like creature was seen around the church and actually attacked people. And one of the persons that it was set upon by this bat-like thing was the daughter of the Reverend Joseph Ireland. Ireland was Robert's immediate predecessor as rector. He, Ireland was rector from 1804 to 1837, so that would have had to put it in that era. The bat, this bat creature bit the young, his daughter, Miss Ireland, I don't know what her name was, and <laughs> she wasn't literally Miss Ireland, but, you know, and flew back to its lair in a tomb. The tomb was that of another priest at the church, the Reverend George Sanderson, who had served in the 17th century. So it flees to a tomb. We're not sure where this tomb is. And it goes in, it, and it, it actually um, inhabits, apparently it goes back to this George Sanderson's a mausoleum or tomb of some sort. Yeah. Some people at the time thought they had seen this bat fly from Sanderson's tomb before it wreaked havoc. So it's, it's all pointing to this guy, George Sanderson, a little bit, this this bat creature. That sounds pretty vampiric, doesn't it? This bat yeah. creature comes out of a tomb, it attacks people, and then goes back to this tomb. That sounds very vampiric. Some modern researchers have traced this legend to the... Um, religious or something to the religious wars of the during the English Civil War. I, I read a lot of it. It's really boring. It's very yeah. technical. It's not interesting. And the end is really it's just historical wild guess. And it's like, oh, this actually stems from the hatred of the Catholics and Protestants. It's it's I everything I re- stems from the hatred I would of judge the it nonsense. And yeah. <laughs> the only interesting point about this folklore is that it shows there were vampire legends in England in the Middle Ages. So that you yeah. know that helps if it was some kind of a family legend these things did exist and again like i mentioned like the eastern european cousins these vampires at the time were these kind of moldy mummified dead things usually which is nothing like the you know suave debonair dracula of the time but still it it, it does kind of 
uh, fix this event in English folklore, this whole vampire of Croglin Grange. So there is a possibility that at least it was a kind of a family story. But notice about how the vampires, especially the vampire in Croglin Grange, what did it, what did it not do? It didn't turn her into a vampire. No. Amelia, if that's her name, didn't become a vampire. She did kind of want to go back. Yeah. So maybe you can read into that, read between the lines that she was like, you know, there's an, an allure there, but she describes this creature as horrible and disgusting right. and gross. It was not the, again, not the the handsome Dracula kind of a thing. Was so, she craving blood? No, there's no indication of that mm. at all. I, I, I literally read you pretty much the entire story, so no. There's no sense she's turning into or, or has become a vampire, so that's that's interesting. Yeah. We do have a case for folklore and family legend, but did anything real actually happen to form the basis of this folklore? If so, let's say this. If so, it was never written about. People have scoured local newspapers and that kind of thing throughout that whole era, and no one's ever found anything that, you know, woman attacked in Grange or in Manor House or something like that. Nothing yeah. of the sort. And this is a small town. This is Crogland, for God's sake. And so nothing was ever reported at the time. That's not, you know, the media wasn't like the media is now. But still, you think that would have been a pretty big deal? I don't know. Someone would have talked about it. Yeah. Something, you know, England has tons of records and people are pouring over all the diaries and things like that from everybody. So it, 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 it's lost to history if, if something like that did happen and was talked, was talked about or written about the supposedly natural explanations that I, you know, the owl, the bats, the monkeys, those are obviously extremely stupid. Yeah. There's nothing to them. It's like the same kind of thing, you know, when people tried to explain biblical miracles as, well, it could have been this, like yeah. Moses. No, no, he didn't literally part the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea, and some big winds made it for a time. It was muddy. I mean, that's just, yeah. no, it's just a story. Or Lazarus, not nah, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he was just in a coma, and Jesus jostled him. When he touched him and he woke up, like Yuri Geller does when he um, when he touches watches that are stopped, and uh, when he touches them long enough, they come back to life. They didn't see him wind the mechanism real quickly, why he was misdirecting your attention, but it's like, you know, we have to explain Lazarus coming back from the dead in some natural medical thing. No, you don't. Made it up. Story. Interesting. What about the whole escaped lunatic from an asylum? No, I mean, maybe, but if that's true... Do you believe that they went back True. and found it in a coffin, in a tomb yeah. that didn't exist, That's in a church the part that didn't of the exist? Story that pretty yeah. much wrecks every possible it explanation. Does, yeah. So yeah, so, you but, know, but that part could have been an add-on embellishment. Yeah, you're right. You're right. The rest is yeah. They shot this escaped lunatic, and yeah, although he's got to be hanging out there for a year, right? When there are whatever that they were in Switzerland for a lengthy period of time. So that means he's hanging around that manor house to do it a second time. Because remember, he came back. Yeah. When, they, when they went back to Crocklin, he came back and that's showed up pretty true. quickly. Or that's so, that's weird. He could not a, forget the escaped lunatic. He's just a crazy guy from yeah. the area. From He lives in Crocklin. And they've, true. they try to shut up Grandpa, but every once in a while he gets out of the attic and he goes strolling mm -hmm. around and he attacks women every, every now and again. Yeah. That could be true. Sure. Or maybe he stayed in the house when they left for a year. And they disturbed Ooh, him when they came back. I like that. He's a squatter. Yeah, they left squ it empty, right? Yeah. So. You know, the squatter of Krogan Grange doesn't have the same grain <laughs> no, as the doesn't. vampire of Krogan Grange. But okay. Then again, if that's true, does he, oh, I, you know, people do think they're vampires and, they, and he could go after her. You know, he, 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 had, he clearly bit her neck and caused a lot of blood. Yeah. So that's interesting. If the story was, though, 
kind of faked. Now, we don't know, was it Augustus Hare? Did Captain Fisher row make it up and just tell a whopper at that dinner in 1874 to 75? Or did Hare make it up? Whole cloth of his own. I mean, or we did, don't know. Did Fisher's grandpa make yes, it true. up? Yes, true. That's true. There's a hint that if the story was invented by Fisher or Hare, though, they may have done some pretty serious borrowing, bordering on plagiarism. Ew. This, this is actually going to help date the story as well. Uh, not long after Hare's recounting appeared, I think it was, again, 1900, people started noticing how similar the Crogdon tale was to a hugely popular earlier vampire tale. Montague Summers was a student of vampire history, and he was kind of a weird guy. He was, he wow, lived, with the name Montague? <laughs> Carrie. For all the Montagues out there, I apologize for Carrie's out, uh, outburst. It's uncalled for. I happen to like it. I say we bring it back. Okay, let's do it. Let's. We're not having any more kids, so I don't know how we're going to do that. We'll just name strangers Montague and insist sure. upon it. Sure, maybe we can bribe one of our children to name a grandchild. It'll be our favorite grandchild. Uh, we'll tell them that. That okay. will inherit all of our Montague. vast yeah. estate. Really? Okay, <laughs> that poor grandchild is in for an unpleasant surprise. So from he lived from 1880 to 1948. It's weird. He dressed like a Catholic priest but there's absolutely no evidence he was a Catholic priest. He was never ordained. He was not a priest. Apparently, it was like a fashion statement. I don't know. Or he's pretending to be a priest, which I thought was illegal. It's quirky. Quirky, yeah. He, okay, we can call him quirky. He studied witchcraft. He studied monsters like werewolves, vampires, and he has said that he believed werewolves, werewolves and vampires were real things. Mm-hmm. He would go to the British Museum reading room all the time, and he'd pace around the room in a black cloak... Remember, this is like the 1900s. Yeah. And holding this huge black covered book with the word vampires on it in blood red letters. Huge blood red letters. So I like him. Yeah. I think he's fun. He's annoying the shit out of the people in the, in the reading room for sure, but that's okay. Summers, though, remember, he's a vampire lover. He's a believer in this kind of thing. He thought the Croglin Grange story had been sort of cribbed from the story called Barney the Vampire or the Feast of Blood. Ever heard of it? No. It's actually a pretty famous vampire story. It was the most famous vampire story prior to Dracula. Barney the Vampire sounds like a children's book. It sounds like a children's book, or it sounds like a comical kind of thing. It was not at all. It was a very serious thriller. Okay. Varney was immensely popular. The story was sold and told in a seemingly endless series of short penny dreadfuls. And it was during kind of the middle of the, like the 18, I want to say 1847, 1845, something like that was when they started coming. I think 1845, they started coming out and they, they published them for, for three years, 1845 to 1847. And so that's about a half a century before Hare's published memoir that included the Crogland of Vampire anecdote was published. Yeah. So he, he was a good chance he would have known about it. Or, or Captain Rowe, maybe too, back in 1874, if Harry's telling the truth. And it was written, the, the Varney Vampire is written by these two hacks named James Malkin Reimer and Thomas Peckett Prest. And the story just meandered because it, they, it was popular, so they just kept it going. Yeah. It's like those those uh, Netflix shows that was supposed to be just eight episodes, a, what's the word? Well, I'm forgetting the phrase, where it's a... Limited series. Limited series, yeah. and then it's really successful to say, let's do a season two, even though yeah. there's nothing there for a season two, and season three, and season four, and season 10. And this was like that. So they just kept on churning out these pretty terrible Penny Dreadfuls about uh, centering on Varney the Vampire, and they 
were super wordy and as long as they can make them. The reason being, very simple. They were paid by the line of text. Oh. So when it was published as a single volume in 1847, it ran to 876 pages with like double columns with small words to 667,000 words. Wow. That's, you know, a, a good seven, eight novels in today's yeah. uh, time and in today's length of, of novels usually. So it's a very, uh, it's a lot of dribble. It's pretty bad. For instance, though, it's set in the early 1700s. They make multiple references to the Napoleonic Wars. What's <laughs> happened a hundred years later? It's like, you know, guys, yeah. you should know that. <laughs> it it did though set the basis for many of I guess kind of tropes now and the cliches of vampire stories. Barney was the first time vampires clearly had sharpened teeth, sharper than normal human teeth. Their canines were what his canines were described as sharp. The old legends didn't didn't make that. They, I mean, it, it ripped at your neck and bit at your neck to cause blood to flow, but it wasn't like the the oh. puncture wounds that have now become so you know you almost you never see a vampire not no, do that usually. Yeah. Yeah. Varney started that. Varney is also very strong, abnormally, you know, superhumanly strong. That wasn't a thing. He has this hypnotic gaze, and it's very effective on pretty young women in particular. Yeah. That was a thing. And he can convert humans into vampires with his bite. So Varney started a lot of these key things that we, we still use to this day in, in telling vampire stories. Specific to Krog and Grain's story, though, it, it, it is interesting. Varney... Once in the stories, he once does stand on a ledge outside of a window and he creepily runs his long fingernail along the glass, oh. just like the vampire Krog and Grange did. He also taps and clicks at the glass, just like in Hare's story. He enters a woman's room in this exact same way that he did and, to, and entered Amelia's boudoir. Quote, a small pane of glass is broken and the form from without introduces a long, gaunt hand which seems utterly destitute of flesh. The fastening is removed, end quote. Just sounds like exact. what it sounds very similar, yeah. yeah. This heroine also, quote, tries to scream, but a choking sensation comes over her and that she cannot, and she finds she cannot withdraw her eyes from the fiend, end quote. And she then finds herself lying, quote, half across the bed and half off it, her long hair streams across the entire width of the bed. And that's a, those are some very specific details that yeah. are found in the Krogan story. And remember, he's writing about this Krogan story, again, about a half a century after Varney when it had long disappeared. He, he claims he was told the story in 1874, which would have still been over 25 years after Varney right. feature. So it could have been, Roe could have been passing it off of the story because people didn't remember Varney the Vampire, I don't think, in 1874, and certainly not in 1900 when Hare wrote it for his memoir. There's more, though. Like the Krogan creature, he also holds the quote, long tresses of her hair and twining them round his bony hands, he held her to the bed. So he, he, he kind of brushes her hair just like he did in the story. Yeah. And uh, just like in the Krogan story, Varney is discovered by the menfolk and they chase him off, just like in that. So there's lots and lots of plots. Mm -hmm. I mean, you put these two side by side and... I don't know. I would. You have to determine this is a case of at least partial plagiarism. At least Hare R. R. Fisher borrowed from Varney, almost certainly. But still, who knows? It may be that there really was a Fisher family with his family legend handed down over the generations, 
maybe it was updated and embellished, maybe even hair updated and embellished it. And, and right. know, let's not blame Fisher Rowe if Fisher Rowe existed. Yeah. But there's something there, whether it was birthed by any kind of real event, we don't know. It's unknown. Probably, I would guess, pretty unlikely, but it was some kind of a family story potentially. Or was it just a wholly invented tale? likely with some highlights that were thanks to his 50-plus-year-old Benny Dreadfuls that were, as I mentioned, long forgotten. It's one of those two things. Who knows? Maybe it was Captain Fisher's imagination. So, right? I mean, what do you think? I, I don't know. What do you think? Was, was Hare uh, just... Did Captain Fisher come up with a neat anecdote because he's trying to top people at the at the dinner party? Yeah. And he, but this seems pretty involved, pretty detailed, if that's true. Yeah. What are we going to say? Well, I was going to say, did you already say this? That maybe Fisher Rowe's family story was the inspiration for Varney Ooh, the Vampire. Ooh, I did not. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. But, well, yes. If we don't were, know truly how old that family story is. No, so. that family story could be hundreds of years old. It could be yep. at least a couple hundred years old from when he told it, for sure. It but we do know who wrote that. Yes, the, we Empire, do. the two so. guys would have then had to hear it from yeah. the family somehow. Because as, as far as we know, there's nothing written down about it until Augustus Hare's memoir in 1900. Yeah. Yeah. So possibly, I like that. It's a possibility. Mm-hmm. I, I would call that... A fairly unlikely possibility. <laughs> How about that it was just Hare needed to liven up six volumes of his of yeah. his life and he needed to throw in some fascinating anecdotes in there and he essentially he kind of, you know, made up a story to throw into his memoir because God forbid a memoirist makes shit up about their story. That's never happened before. Did ever. that guy verify that Fisher Rowe existed? No. Okay. No, I don't. I, yeah. So we don't even know. We don't if, know if yeah, he's a real he person been or not. Making no. up yeah. But even Captain Fisher Rowe, who knows? Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. He could have. He could be a real person. He, yeah. Uh, Augustus Hare could have made him up. But here's why I kind of think the, the latter, and that's because the story kind of reads like a story. Remember, it's supposedly, it's Captain Fisher Rowe at this party. Someone just tells us an anecdote, a story. He says, "I've got one too," and he tells the story that Hare presumably right. faithfully retells. It doesn't read. It reads like a piece of fiction in the sense of the diction, the verbiage. Yes. It reads. I mean, it's these super long sentences and these details well, and description and thoughts and things like that. But that's it, how you retell a story, not, even if it's true. Not in real life, you don't. You do in creepy pasta, but not. Listen to someone tell a story. They don't tell stories no, like I stories. I understand that he's not telling a story. Yeah. He's writing it down. But into a book that he wants to sell and people to enjoy reading it, that's but, different. Fine, I'll give you a point that maybe he did dress up the diction, the verbiage, or whatever. Thanks. But, <laughs> <laughs> but there's also like these these tells within it. There's these contrivances and these kind of plot conveniences that just reek of story. There's a few I thought of. There's, so you have her inability to scream. The only reason to do that is so you can keep her there and have the rest of that scene take place before the menfolk come and chase him off. Yeah. There's the weirdness of the door placement. Same thing. You want her to be scared. You want her to stay in the room because in real life, you're the hell out of there when that thing is still 100 meters from your your room. You, But no, she's frozen there because the yes. door is going to take her by the window, which doesn't make any sense well, whatsoever. Well, for any reason, people freeze. It's it's what? Fight, flight, or freeze. That's not my point. My point is that he places the door in a yeah. way that makes her stay in the bed so he can continue the scene. Because they don't know about fight or fright or fleas. No, I think they did. <laughs> and um, the convenient 
top of the shutters yeah. being, uh, you know, uh, like, like was the, uh, the habit of the day that no, no, shutters went to the top. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. And of course, the same idea is the fact that she stays in that same room. It's just, that's yeah. ridiculous. There's no reason for her to stay in that room. They say, oh, you know, the, the only a certain number of rooms or whatever. So what? She stays in any room except that room. Makes her brother stay in that room. Yeah, of course, yeah. no question. Yeah. But they have to put her back in that room because that's the one where she's going to have the vampire come and get her again. And the last one, I guess, is the obsession with the, um, the single story. I think he keeps on saying that because he wants to excuse why for that scene to take place at all that vampire to be able to walk across the meadow and go right up to the window and start being all creepy and scratch on it and tap on it. It's more difficult if that's on a second floor. Yeah. And I suspect that big manor houses like this would have normally had two floors. So he has to go out of his way yeah. in the story to say how awesome it was that it had a single story. Those are just little things that make it sound like a story. They're plot conveniences, which writers use all the time to make sure that they can get to the part of the story that they want to get, or they continue the, the story in the way that they want to, which, but the, the upshot of all that is that it's a story. Sure. To me, it's, it's, it feels like a 1900 creepypasta. Yeah, maybe. That's what I think it is. It sounds just, just doesn't read right and sound right. By the way, some people have said, oh, this is the inspiration for Dracula. And they forget their math because Dracula was published in 1897. This was published in 1900, so it's not the inspiration for Dracula. Yeah. One last thing. A guy named J.A. Brooks wrote a book about English legends called Ghosts and Legends of the Lake District. That was published in 1988. Brooks says that in the early 1900s, the people then living at, at Croglin Low Hall, which again, some people think was Croglin Grange, right. had a fire in the chimney in the dining room. So I guess it has multiple chimneys. When they went to rebuild the chimney, they found a body in the remains of the ruined pile of charred bricks. Oh. A very old body. Yeah. At least that's how it's described by, by Brooks. The tenants at the time, they wanted to rebury this corpse as good Christians, I guess. They assumed it was a good Christian, so they wanted to bury it in the Crogland churchyard. But the head of the household at the time, again, is early 1900s, died before he got the chance to bury it and have the body buried in the churchyard. It's not clear what happens after that, though. Yeah. Brooks doesn't kind of leaves the story alone. And Brooks says that even today, some people say the corpse found its way back into the new chimney that was rebuilt, and there it still haunts the Croglin Low Hall for all eternity. That yeah. sounds super made up. The of whole course. part, that, the yeah. entire thing from Brooks sounds super made up yeah, because I agree. that makes no sense. Yeah. He, he doesn't, whenever you, you leave out names and things like that, it just, the current tenant, you know, now, yeah. if you really research this and you have this story as fact, you, you tell us the details. Yeah. Or, I mean, who knows? Maybe he heard it, you know, and, and just retelling, I don't know. But the vampire of Krogan Grange, is it fact? Is it legend? Or is it 1900 Creepypasta? Your final verdict, Carrie. You know my vote. Uh, creepy pasta. Creepy pasta. That's my, that's what I. Yeah. yeah, that's what I think. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. You think so too? Yeah. I think there is a chance that it's, it was a, a a passed down family legend, and that, like you said, maybe Augustus Harris decided I'm not going to say it how that guy said. I'm going to basically write it up like a story. Yeah, it could be with my purple prose. That's possible. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. Yeah. But in terms of it being an owl or a monkey. No. Or a bat? No, no. Or a real vampire. Or a real vampire. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, you I know. also say no. And in terms of being obsessed by how 
awesome it was to have just one story at Crogan Grange. That's weird. That's yeah. the, I, to me, that's the most fascinating part I, of the yeah, story. I agree. It's one story obsession. <laughs> it's like, oh, they did, they weren't so stupid as to add a second story, like idiots. So yeah, yeah, that's funny. It is funny. Well, that is the story, of the vampire of Croglin Grange. An interesting story because it comes from England, where there were not a lot of vampire yeah. legends and folklore, and it potentially, potentially comes from semi-modern time. One more thing: Do you think it was stolen from Barney the Vampire? No. You don't? I do. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. No, oh, yeah. it must be. I think yeah. it was. I, but I, yeah. if I'm right, Augustus Hare basically, you know, stole some portions of. He read Barney the Vampire yeah. in his youth, and he um, just stole some portions of that to make up a story. Well, thanks, Dean, for another creepy, if the, not true, Halloween story. We will have one more hollow weird world upcoming, and that will be uh, yes. uploaded on. Halloween. Halloween. Don't know what it's going to be. Hopefully it'll be something spooky. We don't know. We'll or see. Halloween related. Somehow, in some form, <laughs> it will be Halloween related for sure. The world may run out of Halloween spooky no, stories. No, 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 no. I have a lot more. Trust me. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks for listening. See ya. Bye.